this, of course, takes place uh, after Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples, uh, after they have uh, broken bread together, where he has uh, revealed that one of them will betray him, and Judas sort of sneaks off into the night because Satan has filled him. Uh, not only that, but he has told um, Peter that Peter's going to deny him before the cock crows three times. Uh, they have sung a song after the Lord's table, the institution of it, and they have departed from there. And so we pick up in the evening in that place. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it in all earnestness. To your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't know about you, but when the movie Braveheart came out, I was all in. I was thoroughly encouraged by that movie. It was just one of those movies that just going, I just couldn't get enough of that movie. I would study it and uh, enjoy the different things that happened in the movie and keep track of the, what interested me was the father-son relationships in the film. If you ever have a chance to go through it again, note the different father-son relationships throughout the film. It's fascinating stuff. But then I read a, a biography on William Wallace, and I got disappointed in the film. <laughs> because as what often happens with a biopic, it doesn't match up with actual history. Events are changed not sure why, often out of convenience, or perhaps the fact that we don't know a whole lot about the life of William Wallace. But this we do know about the end of his life, that William Wallace was betrayed, that William Wallace was therefore captured by the English, those mean English, that he was taken to London, that he stood, and I've been at the spot where he stood, where he was condemned by the Parliament taken to the Tower of London where he awaited his death by which he would be drawn and quartered. Not a pleasant death at all. And it would be easy for us to look and to see 
sort of a, a Christ sort of parallel. And indeed, there are some parallels that exist between Jesus and William Wallace. But there are also parallels that exist between Jesus and Adam. And that is where Luke wants us to go. The big idea this evening is that Jesus, the second Adam, enters the garden to obey. Let's start with the reality that Jesus enters the garden amidst danger. But let's go all the way, so to speak, to the beginning, to Luke's genealogy. Before there, there is something very significant in his genealogy. Because he goes backwards all the way through. And, and where Matthew's stops or starts with Abraham, he goes even farther back, all the way to Adam. Adam, the son of God. That's significant. For Matthew's genealogy starts off with the fact that Jesus, and it says this, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The whole point of Matthew's gospel is to show that Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the covenants that are made to Abraham and that are made, and is also made to David. And so as you read Matthew's gospel, you're supposed to see it within that light. And I believe that, that this is, that this gospel is meant to be read within this light of Jesus as the second Adam. I say that because it's mentioned there that he is the son of Adam, ultimately. But also, you'll notice, we don't have a gospel by Paul directly. But we do have one by Paul sort of indirectly. Because we know that, that from Acts that Luke hung out with Paul. Luke was with him on his many uh, missionary journeys, the very cities he went through. He was there. And you know, when you hang out with somebody, you talk. And I, I, I cannot imagine uh, them spending a whole lot of time together as they travel the known world without them having some conversation about Jesus that somehow parallels Romans chapter 5, which talks about Jesus as the second Adam. And so it doesn't surprise me that when Luke begins to pen this gospel, he not only takes the accounts from first-hand and second-hand accounts that he has recorded, but he does it in such a way that he wants to communicate that Jesus is the second Adam. That's the big picture. Now we kind of focus in. Everything in Luke has been driving to this point. The earthly ministry of Jesus has been driving to this point where they've begun to celebrate the Passover together. This night. This night when Jesus left to betray Him. This night when Jesus warns of the denial that is about to come. And so He and the eleven leave the upper room. And what Luke mentions is they go, they followed their custom. They do what they always did. They went to a particular place, a place that Judas knows. That's going to be very important. And they went to a place called the Mount of Olives. Matthew notes that not only did they go to the Mount of Olives, but they went to a particular place on the Mount. They went to a particular garden, and that garden was called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press, which makes sense when you're on the Mount of 
olives, right? But this is the place where they would press the olives so that they would be able to get the oil. It's good if you're the person like me who likes olive oil. Not so good if you're the olive, right? Significant, I think, to me. When we think about the first Adam, where was he when temptation came? He was in the Garden of Eden, a garden in which he worked, but in which there was no apparent threat to him. It was paradise on earth, so to speak. There were no thorns. He did not have to work by the sweat of his brow. There were no weeds that sprung up as he worked and kept the garden. Jesus, when his temptation comes a second time, goes to a garden. That's main, that's main means, the name means pressure, temptation, affliction. Because Jesus is going to be pressed. That's really the, the meaning of the word uh, temptation that we find here. It denotes that there's pressure put on something, affliction, and the, and the temptation is a part of that. He lives, he experiences the situation that the first Adam caused by his own sin. And so Jesus, as he enters into this garden, which should be a place of refuge, should be a place of peace, instead he realizes, he knows that he is opposed by both men and Satan. Let's think about William Wallace for a second. He obviously was opposed by the English, and particularly the English king, Edward Longshanks. Not a nice fellow if you study history. But he was also opposed by some of the Scottish noblemen who ate at the trough of the English king and didn't want to lose their power, and so they were behind the ones that betrayed him. We're not exactly sure who betrayed him, but in the movie Braveheart, it doesn't apply. It states that it is Robert the Bruce who, under the advice of his father, those father-son relationships, who, under the advice and counsel of his father, betrays him. He had all of his hopes set on William Wallace, just like Judas had many hopes set upon Jesus himself. And instead of listening to his father, Judas listened to the evil one, the father of all lies. And is going to come and betray the one he said that he loved. Jesus' goal as he is in this garden is ultimately to undo the mess that the first Adam caused. He is going to be pressed down. He is going to be crushed, just as we read about earlier in Isaiah 53. And so as the second Adam, Jesus enters a garden that threatens to destroy him. Secondly, Jesus resisted temptation through prayer. As they arrive at the garden, he encourages the disciples. He tells them to pray so that they will not enter into temptation. And the temptation he has in mind is the one that he has warned them of, that they will betray him, and specifically the the disciple Peter. For he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That turned again has basically when you have repented, which means that Satan is going to have his way for a time with Peter. This is a sort of a pastoral aside. It's not the main point of the text here. But I want to mention that often when we sin, it is because we have failed to pray. Knowing that there is temptation, we have failed to pray that we do not enter into that temptation. But when we repent, it is always because Jesus has not failed to pray for us. You see here, I have prayed for you, he says to Simon, also known as Peter. And so when we repent, it's evidence of Jesus' heavenly intercession for us that we would be able to come back from our disobedience. I want to talk about that idea of fall, of entering into temptation. Sometimes the text is translated as fall into temptation. It's very passive. But what Jesus is talking about here is not passive, it's active. I thought of this in terms of a body of water. If there's a pool of water, the, you know, falling sort of means like you're walking by, you slip, ah, you're in the water. And I've had that happen to me. The idea of entering into is not that you slip and fall into the water, but you make a conscious decision either to climb into the water or to jump into the water. Dive. The reality of temptation is that it, it is sort of, it's there. Temp- being tempted is not sin. The problem is, is when we enter into that which we are tempted to do. That's the point that I think Jesus is making. That there's going to be a, a temptation that arises, and I'm praying that you do not go into that temptation. That you don't participate in that which you are tempted to do. Jesus warns them. And then he does exactly what he encouraged them to do. Jesus prayed. He prayed in part because he was tempted. He was tempted in the garden. He follows his model prayer, the one that he gave to the disciples, lead us not into temptation. We know that from Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus in the garden is experiencing temptation, and instead of entering into that temptation, He enters into prayer. He prays. Now, typically prayer is done standing up for a good Jew. Often with their hands, they pray. If you go to the Wailing Wall, they're standing, they're praying. Jesus, on the other hand, kneels. In a sense, He's serious, but also He's weak. He can't even stand to pray. In Matthew, the implication is also that He, at some point, falls upon His face as he prays, he's broken. He's distressed. He's in agony. And it brings him to his knees. Reminded of that today. 
my back's not doing so well. And I remember a couple of times years ago when the kids were much younger, and I remember having to change a diaper one day and leaning over to take care of, I think it was Jaden, and all of a sudden my back just went, and I fell to my knees in absolute agony. Jesus is in agony in this moment. And He falls upon His knees to do this. The particular temptation is that Jesus is tempted, I'm sure, to run. He's already resisted temptation to a point because obviously He knows they're going to come for Him. He knows that they're going to come that night because Judas has gone out that night. He knows what's coming. All He has to do is just not be there. All he has to do is just change from his normal custom and not go to the place where they normally go. That's all he has to do or all that he has to do right now that he's there is to leave. And so there's the temptation I'm sure that he felt was to run to a place where he could hide so they couldn't find him until the hour had passed and that he would be safe. See, William Wallace had no such luxury. He did not know that there was a plot against him until the English came upon him. When he finds out about his impending death, he cannot run away because he's in prison. He's in the Tower of London. Jesus has opportunities to flee, but does not take it. Though he's tempted. Help came to him. An angel, the text says, comes and strengthens him. Why does an angel have to come and strengthen him? Because the disciples are asleep. They're not even praying. Apparently their sorrow was so great, according to the text, that they fell asleep. I'm not sure I've ever had that experience. Maybe I've cried myself to sleep. So maybe that's what they were doing. But help comes anyway. But we see that in his humanity, Jesus is not Superman. He's weak, as we are weak. And he needs that help from the angel. Sinclair Ferguson notes that his holy humanity experienced heights and depths of emotion that are unknown by sinful humanity. And so there's a sense in which his highs, his joys were greater than ours ever could be, but also the depths to which he could go were greater than we could ever experience. And so if you have ever experienced what William, uh, not William, Winston Churchill called the black dog, the, 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 the cloud of depression, you can know that Jesus has been deeper than you. He can find you in that horrible place. And so instead of giving up, it says he prayed more earnestly. He continued to persist in prayer. Now, Luke only mentions this one time, this extended period of prayer, but Matthew mentions that he went to the disciples at least twice and woke them up. How would you like to be one of those guys? And Jesus is sort of like nudging you with his foot. Come on, guys, let's go. Three rounds of prayer for Jesus as he agonizes before the throne of his Father. He is struggling. And so the greater the temptation, the greater our prayer must be. His agony was such that that Luke says, he sweat like great drops of blood. That's how 
big the sweat beads. It was flop sweat sort of stuff. He was agonizing. He was in such emotional turmoil. The sweat was pouring off of him like blood. Jesus is being squeezed. He's being run out like a sponge. And he feels the weight of all the sin beginning to come down upon him. And so for Jesus, like Adam, the garden becomes a place of temptation. But unlike Adam, Jesus prayed. Third, last, Jesus obeyed for us and for our salvation. In the Lord's prayer that He taught His disciples to pray, He told them, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus follows that pattern. This is the only time essentially that Jesus has to pray this, I think. Because He says, not my will. He's not demanding His own way. But He asks, even while sort of um, being willing to submit, and we sort of enter into one of the mysteries of Jesus who is both God and man. There's a part of Him whose will is different from the Father's. Someone asked the Gospel Coalition about this, and so they assigned this task to John McKinley, who's over at uh, Talbert School at Biola, in, uh, I think in L.A. And he mentions, the temptation of Jesus through His human will was necessary for Him to succeed where Adam failed and to obey God as a man for our righteousness. And so what he's saying there is, Jesus, because He is fully God and fully human, has everything that pertains to each nature. And so he has a will, a divine will, because he is fully God. But he also has a second will, because as a, as a fully human person, as one who is fully human, he also has a human will. And so it, the divine will, of course, is in complete harmony with the Father and in the Spirit. But as it pertains to His humanity, His will wants something else. He wants the cup to be taken away. He's struggling because His desire right now as a man was different from the Father's will which makes perfect sense because he suffers as the second Adam, as the second man, as the second head of a covenant. He would rather not drink the cup of God's wrath that we read about, or was read to us rather, from Isaiah 51 earlier, if he had to, just as William Wallace didn't want to be drawn and quartered This cup was first filled with Adam's disobedience, but with ours it only got fuller. Jesus is not concerned so much about the physical pain of the cross, although that in itself is daunting. 
But what really I imagine is distressing him is the sin that he would have to bear. For as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us. As the substitute, he bears the sin. And so as he's also going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. And that is what distresses him. He's going to voluntarily bear the wrath of God that's due to sinners. As the second Adam, he is going to be forsaken by the Father. As he cries out in in, uh, quoting Psalm 22, Not my Father, my Father, but my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The only time I can think of where Jesus did not call him Father was when he was suffering upon the cross. Because he suffered in the place of sinners. So Jesus continues that thought, not mine, but yours be done. Even though he longs for another way, Jesus is willing to do it if this is what God the Father wants. We've all been there. My kids do that thing too, you know. We tell them to do something, but I don't want to. And so in a sense, the Father has told him, go to the cross, and Jesus says, I don't want to. But he doesn't go off in a tantrum. He says, but I will. He submits to the Father. It is this obedience that undoes the disobedience of Adam so that God can save sinners like us who not only don't want to, but don't do it. But as sinners who are saved by grace, we can learn to live as Jesus taught us to pray. As people who are renewed by the grace of God, we can begin to say, Not my will be done, but your will. We can start to say, I know I don't want to, but I will because I love you. We can begin to do that, but only because Jesus first has said that and done that and purchased our salvation. Without this garden, with its obedience and with its suffering, we would remain east of Eden, lost in sin and transgression. Well, William Wallace was a national hero in Scotland. If you, there's a big memorial that uh, there by, uh, ooh, can't remember where it was. Um, anyway, I saw it from the highway. <laughs> I wanted to go. I was like, no, no, let's go off the highway. But we had already climbed Ben Nevis and it was raining, so it wasn't going to happen. If you, if you go to Edinburgh and go to the castle, there, there's two big statues and his is one of them. He's a national hero. But he never saw Free Scotland. He only saw betrayal and a cruel death. It was Robert the Bruce who, if you go to Dunfermline, you can go to his grave and you can see the chapel and Robert Bruce is up on the top of the spire in big, bold letters. 
He is the one who would do what William Wallace could not do. Jesus, on the other hand, entered the Garden of Gethsemane because Adam disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. Jesus would be betrayed. Jesus would suffer a horrible death to set his people free. He's not a hero. He's a savior because he did what William Wallace could never do. Die to set a people free. Let's pray. Father, indeed, it is a somber moment, and we are prone to be like the disciples, consumed with ourselves instead of consumed with the purpose and plan of Jesus. We thank you for the grace that is available for the grace that Jesus has purchased for us by His obedience, by His death upon the cross, and as we'll see on Sunday, His resurrection from the dead. But now uh, let us meditate for a few days upon what He has done, not in sort of um, an academic, intellectual exercise, but perhaps to sit and meditate and ponder the agony he experienced emotionally, not just physically. To rejoice that he did not enter into temptation, but that he resisted and was obedient in our place. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.